Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&A. I'm recording these Thursday late afternoon, so I think there's enough time for all the questions to have come through. So let's jump in and see what we got. First up, Richard Webster said they're using a VGA cable on their Xbox 360, and it'll be going into an Xtron VGA switch, but the cable is short by 1 to 2 meters. Will it be okay to use a VGA cable to extend it so it could reach their switch box without losing picture quality or introduce latency? So the latency part's the easy part. Nope, zero latency when adding analog video extension cords. Theoretically, you'd have to have something thousands of feet long to introduce anything, so you're, you're good to go on that side. As far as picture quality goes, yes, but how much depends on a lot of factors. So first and foremost, anytime you add anything to an analog signal chain, technically it degrades the picture quality. The only question is, can you see it or do you need an oscilloscope or zoomed in 10,000% in order to see the differences? So my suggestion is as long as you make sure that you're using a shielded good quality VGA cable, which I linked to the one that I've been using, hopefully it's the same quality as the, the past few that I bought, but as long as you use a good shielded VGA cable and a decent coupler, which they're all pretty much the same, then you should be totally fine. And at the very least, you definitely don't have to worry about latency. So I'll leave a link to the one that I use, and hopefully it's still just as good quality as the last time I bought it, which wasn't too long ago. Mike was following up on our discussion last week of picture quality differences between component and SCART, and Mike said they went ahead and ordered the G-Comp switch. So I'm pretty sure I said this last week, but in, in case I didn't, full disclosure, Super G, the creator of these switches, is a friend of mine, but anybody that's followed me for a while knows that my friends and I are almost always each other's harshest critics, and especially somebody like Super G, where anytime there was even a question of a problem, there was no ego. It wasn't, my switch is perfect, how dare you? It was the opposite. It's, what'd you find? How'd you test it? Let me reproduce it on my side. You know, let's figure this out. Maybe it's a testing issue which the only real problem I ever found was an issue with my probes. Uh, I, it's the probes I get for my oscilloscope are weird. They don't work right sometimes, but I learned how to not make that an issue anymore. But, you know, side rant uh, aside here, my only point is that I'm not sure if I, I fully disclose that, you know, a lot of the products that I talk about are products made by friends. But I think that you know, I hate to sound pompous, but I think that would actually go a step farther to solidify that it's pretty decent. You know, nobody's perfect. A lot of people, especially when it comes to small runs of production, you know, have shipping delays and especially because of a global part shortage, have production delays. So, you know, nothing's ever perfect, but I just wanted to, to fully disclose that a lot of the stuff I talk about is made by friends. And that's usually a good thing because I'm lucky enough to have some really awesome, really smart friends. So uh, good luck with the G-Comp switch. I'm sure it's it's going to perform exactly the way that you had hoped. Uh, but if not, jump on the forums because Super G is really active and always very helpful if anybody has any issues. Rick Lewis wanted to know if there was any quality difference between JP21 and SCART, and assuming both of the cables are made with the same quality cable and the same quality manufacturing, no, they're identical. And in fact, they're the same exact signals going to the same exact head, just with a slightly different pinout. So I do normally recommend people stick with SCART unless you already own a bunch of JP21 stuff, just because there's a much wider variety of cables available now with a SCART pinout versus what you would have to hunt down for JP21. But if you've already purchased a bunch of those cables and you have a mix of the two and you can't really stick to one or the other, luckily the Ashenworks switch, uh, which I'll leave a link to the, the SCART switch page on the website, but that can actually handle both. You just have to be really careful to uh, toggle the buttons correctly. 
But unless you already own a mix, I would really just say get SCART because you could just log on to three different manufacturers that make consistently good quality cables and just not have to worry about that stuff. We're trying to find JP21 is usually a lot harder or requires a custom cable order. Uh, but nope, the short version, provided that it's the same cable. So you're not talking about like a $2 AliExpress SCART cable versus a, a custom coax fully shielded JP21. As long as the cable itself is the same quality, it's identical on both. Alan Ricks wants to know why larger companies like Nintendo or Sega haven't capitalized on the popularity of retro game cartridges and made official repros of original retro games. So not on Switch Online, not on mini consoles, but official cartridges that are remade to be just like the original. And while I don't have a solid answer, I have a guess, but I'd also always like to hear everybody else's thoughts too. But here's my guess. Manufacturing anything to a high quality of standards is really hard. Even if it's a tiny little chip with three little pieces of you know components on it on a PCB, making sure that you get that under a good quality assurance, good testing, and really getting a manufacturer that knows what they're doing is a lot of effort and costs a lot of money. So for somebody like Nintendo to spin up manufacturing of those, they'd have to make probably minimum of 100,000 in order for that to actually be worthwhile to them. Um, and that's, once again, a wild guess here. I don't know. Um, you know, smaller companies like Capcom did release official uh, releases through other companies, but they had other manufacturers make it for them. And Nintendo doesn't normally do stuff like that. I think they control their stuff a little more tightly. Um, I don't know about Sega. That's also a good question. But I just think in order to do this right you'd really have to spend a lot of time and effort. And I think larger companies want to really focus moving forward than on some of the legacy stuff. And maybe they also want to leave room for the smaller companies to step up. But also think about what ha would happen if they didn't have a really high quality release. So think think about what if they released like um, a Japanese version of a game uh, you know, on a worldwide compatible cart translated to English and the translations were all wrong and the box art was wrong and the, you know, the everything, the manual was flimsy, the, the edge wasn't beveled, you know, that was running at the wrong voltage. Basically like that one company that, that pretty much does try to buy old IP and sells them off as junk. You know, when a company made up of like one or two people does that, it's not excusable, but it's like, eh, all right, there's somebody just trying to do a cash grab. But if Nintendo ever did that, there would be a huge blowback. You know, that's, that's a large return for people that don't want to have to buy low quality stuff like that. So I think it would be, it would be a PR nightmare for them. So rather than try to take the risk and spin up manufacturing in order to make it worthwhile to them, I think they just stick with the stuff that they've been doing. Now, once again, that is all wild speculation just based on um, my years of experience in hardware manufacturing, which I do have that, but I don't have any insight into Nintendo or Sega. I'm just speculating based on that and based on the qu uh, the quantity of stuff that Nintendo usually makes when they make a product. So it's a very good question, but I think in the future, uh, I hope I'm wrong, but I think what we're going to see is stuff like Capcom having Retrobit officially license a re-release of like Mega Man Wily Wars, for example, and having that be distributed 
on a smaller scale, knowing that, you know, Retrobits had a history of making good quality cartridges. Uh, people in the retro gaming community have been reaching out and giving their feedback. So I think something on a much smaller scale like that, even if that scale is 10,000 or 20,000, it's still not 100,000 or more. So I think that's just it. Qu uh, quantity versus uh, total profit and how that would help their overall bottom line. Whereas I think Nintendo now, like if they make... You know, if they make a, a, a uh, forgot what do you call those things? Those little figurines that, that they used to sell all the time. If they make a new one of those, they could probably sell 200,000 of them and they make a giant profit off of it. And the QA is basically just, you know, do, do they look okay or the colors right? So uh, that's just my guess. Um, but if anybody else has any info or any thoughts, I'm always interested in other opinions on that stuff. A few questions from Finney. First, why do so many pinout diagrams online show the Nintendo multi-out as having mid and side audio rather than left and right? Is this actually a thing or did they just get this wrong? I honestly don't know, and to be perfectly honest, the only diagrams I've been using for years now are the ones I made. Um, I believe I first saw them on GameSX.com, and then I took pictures myself that were a tiny bit higher quality at the time, added, you know, in MS Paint the different letters, and since then I've been using my own because I've, I've done mods with those diagrams for so long. I, I know they're right because otherwise I would have modded like 50 consoles the wrong way. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I don't remember seeing it like that, but, uh, you know, maybe it was a thing. I'm not really sure. I just use, usually stick to the guides that I have on Retro RGB now. Next, for C-Sync att uh, attenuation on SCART, is any final peak-to-peak -peak voltage between 300 millivolts and 1 volt acceptable? I believe it's actually closer to like 220 and I would say like 950 millivolts. Uh, and remember, that's under 75 ohm load. So if you're doing uh, any kind of tests on an oscilloscope, it has to have 75 ohm termination on it. But that should be fine uh, as far as a wider scope of things. A lot of the mods that I'm a part of, we try to aim right in the middle of that just for the heck of it. Some of them ended up being much lower and being at like the 260 range, but that's not, there's nothing wrong with that. We're just trying to cover the wide variety of stuff that you could be plugging this into. So that's why we normally try to aim right for the middle. Um, you're also wondering if SNES C-Sync cables can safely be used on both a stock SNES uh, and something with Bordy's board outputting a higher peak-to-peak -peak voltage. Yeah, it should. Um, if you wanted to test, I'll leave a link in the description to the page on the website with all of the different oscilloscope videos that I made. Most of them are involving Steve from HD Retrovision because he's way smarter than me and I picked his brain for all that stuff. Uh, so you could test if you wanted, but Bordy's got a scope too. I'm pretty sure he verified that it was within safe voltage. I would not want to go over one volt because I think the max... Um, for a lot of the chips that are used is like 1.2 volts. Uh, but I would always go under that because the, the, spec that I just spit out is a specific type of chip that's used in a few of the products that are out now, but that doesn't cover all SCART products where if something is built to spec between like 250-ish and 950-ish would be safe, you know, assuming it's built to spec. Um, so I don't know if you would ever need to tweak the output of Bordy's board. I would just double and triple check on a scope if you had one. Oh, and is there a guide anywhere to checking the RGB output of a console on a scope? Uh, yeah, 
Um, the only thing you have to remember is you need 100% color bars or a white screen. Uh, 240p test suite has both. The HD Retrovision test software also has that. Uh, both are free, so as long as you have a way to boot a ROM, you should be able to do it. And I definitely recommend checking out those scope videos because, you know, if it's one of these situations where you're going to do one or two mods, then you probably don't need it. You know, if you're a nerd and a tinkerer like me, then you might want the Dexter tools. But if you plan on doing a few different types of mods and learning about video signals, it's a really fun and neat tool to have. And it's always just such a cool peace of mind, especially when I do things like, all right, let me grab my arcade board, let me get everything set up, uh, and let me set the audio voltage to the exact voltage level that it should be to prevent any kind of clipping. And when I throw it on the scope and I have it exactly where I need it to be, it's just a good feeling. Because even if you have one of the newer super guns that protects against overvoltage, you still might get some clipping, which isn't going to hurt anything on those newer super guns, but it distorts the audio. So it's just very cool to be able to flip on my scope and test that stuff. Uh, lastly, they got one of those MD lights from AliExpress. I still have to do my more formal video on that, by the way. I just did the live stream, and the, we ran into a couple of problems that turned out to be a fuse. So I definitely want to make sure to get a higher quality video out there because that wasn't fair. I mean, it was fair because it was the exact... I mean, it was a legitimate, you know, analysis of the thing I had in front of me, but I hope I didn't give that a bad name because all it was is the fuse and it's been corrected ever since. So I should swing back around. Uh, but you specifically said that you're noticing composite color is really messed up on the RetroTINK 2X. This is a known issue, and it doesn't happen with every Genesis, but I think it happens with most. And depending on the game and depending on the revision, you may have even seen this on the FrameMeister as well. So it's just kind of one of those known issues. The RetroTINK 5X doesn't seem to have any, but overall, it's just unfortunately something you'd have to deal with. So if that's the case, you might want to consider upgrading to any of the other output solutions, including HD retrovision cables, which the RetroTINK 2X would handle wonderfully. So that's kind of uh, the only thing I could suggest, which, which stinks. I know that, you know, if you already have a bunch of equipment, you shouldn't have to upgrade, but it's just kind of what you get when you're trying to deal with older consoles that were meant to be played on older TVs that didn't have any of these issues. And when you try to digitize that, you could always run into a whole bunch of different issues and stuff like that. So yeah, uh, thanks for the reminder. I got to go back and do that MD light video. Shouldn't be too long or take too long because I did all the research. I just got to put it together with some fancy video clips and stuff like that. So hopefully I'll finally have time to get back into making some of the more higher production videos soon. Kelv SYC wanted to know if you have a Dreamcast that's unmodded in terms of the power supply, what's the best solution for powering both the Dreamcast and the DreamPi on a single power supply? I don't think that's a safe thing to do. Uh, you could do something like tap into the 5 volts off of the Dreamcast's internal power supply and run a cable out and then make your own custom cable to power the DreamPi, but... You know, those internal PSUs are designed to only take a specific amount of load. They're all getting older, so you would I would definitely recommend recapping the power supply if you were going to do that. And it just seems like an unnecessary risk to mess with power for something like that. So I, I do completely understand wanting to streamline your setup to have less power bricks and less everything else. Uh, I just I don't I don't know that I would feel comfortable doing that. So 
If you want to, just double check the voltage and the amperage and try to wire something up directly. It's just not something that I personally would feel comfortable doing. But if you want to give it a shot, as long as the voltage and minimum amperage is uh, it matches, I would still do some kind of recap to the power supply too, just to make sure. But um, that's really up to you if you want to risk it. Oliver Clare said their setup uses IKEA Calyx cubes, and the ventilation's good, but they still find that some of their consoles, such as the PlayStation 3, are still prone to overheating. They're just wondering if there are any brands of cooling plates, pads, or similar cooling solutions that I would recommend. So, first of all, I've seen a lot of people setups using those IKEA Calyx cube setups, and they all look really great. So, uh, you know, every time I see something posted on Instagram or Twitter, it always looks really cool. So, I don't think there's ever a problem with using those. But to get rid of the heat, if it were me personally, if aesthetics allowed for it, I would just take the consoles that are the hottest and put them on top because hot air rises and when you're inside the cube, it does tend to build up a little bit. So that should get rid of the issue. But if you can't do that for whatever reason, I would consider something like maybe using a USB powered fan that sits right behind the console and just vents it out the back. Or if you have it right up against the wall, uh, I, you could try to maybe put a fan in the corner of the cube uh, in the bottom and try to vent it out the front. I know that kind of would probably look ugly. And in that case, maybe you would want to look into a general cooling pad for a laptop. But as long as there's some kind of space between the, uh, the shelving and the wall, I would just try a USB-powered fan right behind the console, exhausting it. That way, whatever hot air is building up just gets sent right out the sides or back, and it hopefully might make a difference. I think just getting the trapped air out is a big deal. And noise is the only other thing I would worry about. Getting, you know, like, a, when I say a larger, I just mean not like a, a one inch by one inch fan, like a three or five inch fan, and sitting that behind the console, you know, running a cable around carefully so you can't really see it and plugging it into the USB port. That should be silent, especially next to a PS3. I don't think you'd ever hear that. Whereas some of those laptop cooling pads I've heard get pretty loud. So um, that's kind of my only thoughts on it. But there's a million ways to try to fix it. Unfortunately, you're just going to have to figure out whichever is the best for your specific setup. But hopefully I could at least provide some, some direction and shoot out some ideas for you. Alex S. has the same ZD915 desoldering station that I have. It's actually sort of right there, uh, kind of right at the edge of the screen for anybody watching on video. And they find that they're often not clearing holes with it. Are they supposed to be cleaning the tip like they would a normal soldering iron? Do I know if genuine HACO tips are compatible with it? And could I run down my procedure when using the desoldering station? Well, I'm not sure if the HACO tips are compatible, but I'll gladly run through my procedure because it's something that I learned the hard way. Um, the first thing that I do before I even power it on is pop out the little plastic filter, uh, the one with the spring in it and everything else, and I clean that out. You might want to do that right over your garbage can because it tends to you know, kind of blow solder out in all directions, uh, but I clean that thing out as, as best I can. I don't go crazy. I usually tap it on the side, and if I see a bunch of funk in it, maybe every Every 10 times, I'll just grab a Q-tip and run it through the inside to unstick whatever is still kind of flopping around in there. And then I'll look at the paper filter and see the condition it's in. Uh, very often, you'll have to like pop that out with your thumb because a bunch of solder would have built up on the edge of it. Um, and if it's still thick and looks new-ish, cool. If not, throw it out and grab another. You could buy a bag of, you know, a bag of like 50 for very cheap, you know, just a few dollars. Um, 
I think that desoldering station came with them. And the other day, I thought I ran out, so I ordered a big bag. And then as I was packing up, I found the ones that it came with. So now I think I have enough for a lifetime. Uh, so make sure that's all clean. Put it back together. And then the next thing I do, uh, you know, anybody listening who has a better procedure, by the way, please jump in. But the next thing I do is power it on and take that poker thing that came with it. So it's got like a plastic grip on the end and a metal poker that's kind of burred a little bit on the end. And I'll just try to go right from the front all the way to the back very carefully to clear it out. Sometimes it gets stuck because the residual solder had kind of gunked up in there. But ever since I started cleaning it every time I used it, I mean, within reason, by the way, if you power that thing on and you desolder three tiny little pads and power it off, I wouldn't clean it. But if you desoldered three or four chips, I would clean it. And as long as you do that, just sticking that poker from the front to the back a couple of times should be all that you need. Um, then I make sure to wait till it gets up to all the way the hottest temperature that I've set it at. So I don't, I kind of like try to clear it once, then leave it. And then I go back and clear it again once it's got hot, just to make sure. And while it's heating up, the other thing that I'll often do, and I, I took this trick from Voltar, is like, let's say you're desoldering a chip from uh, an NES. So you're desoldering the PPU or something. I'll add flux to the pins and I'll add fresh solder to all the joints. And I usually drag solder that, which I'm not the best at that, but when you're going to desolder the chip anyway, it doesn't really matter as long as you don't try to power it on between. But adding fresh solder to it will kind of break up the stuff that's been stuck there for 30 years, mix it in with a new one, and kind of make it easier for things to move around. Uh, then I'll take the desoldering gun and I'll stick it on the pin and I'll kind of push the pin in one direction or the other. Not enough to bend it, but just enough so that once the solder gets hot, you could feel the pin easily moving around. And that's when I'll pull the trigger and kind of wiggle the gun around a little bit. And doing it that way, uh, you know, it seems like it would take longer because you have to add solder and clean it and all that stuff. But I'm able to desolder chips super fast now because of that. I mean, infinitely faster than when I used the crappy gun that I didn't even clean that much. And it didn't work right even when it was brand new. So that wasn't <laughs> that it wasn't just the cleaning that did it on that old one. And uh, as soon as I'm done as well, I'll power it off. Uh, and while it's still hot, immediately after powering off, I'll clear it with that poker thing again a couple times, and then I'll just put it back on the holster and leave it for next time. So I think if you stick to that procedure, you're going to get a lot better results. Uh, if you're doing something like recapping a power supply, um, that's definitely, you know, that's something that I don't know if I would add solder to every leg of every capacitor, but you could always repeat the process. So when I'm doing recaps, I'll stick the soldering gun around the leg of the capacitor. Uh, if the leg is like pushed down on top of the PCB, I might use a poker or a razor blade and a soldering gun to bend that up manually. Because if you use the so desoldering gun and you kind of push on the motherboard, you could scrape traces on the motherboard, which I've done. Um, but that's pretty much it. And then I'll do the whole, you know, wait till it wiggles, pull the trigger. And if it doesn't come out after that, depending on what it looks like, I might just hold my soldering gun up against it uh, or add solder and try again. It really depends how stuck in there I feel like it is. And things like the MV1C motherboard, uh, the ground plane is so thick on that, you might even need the desoldering gun and a soldering iron at the same time to get to it. But that's the only one I've run into where it's that bad is the MV1C. The rest of them is usually totally fine. Um, 
Lastly, you said you wanted to recap your Xbox's power supply as well, but notice there's a bunch of white glue from the factory on several of the components. Do I need to replace this glue after recapping? I don't, I don't think Voltar or Jose do either. Um, I don't really know why they were there. I think it could just be to prevent things from bouncing around and shipping. But generally speaking, if you know, if you do a decent job, you don't leave the capacitor sticking up with like three inches of legs on there. You know, if you have it kind of all set nicely, I don't think that you would ever need that. Um, I, I'd certainly never put it back, and I haven't heard of ever there being an issue of not replacing the glue, uh, causing any issues like that. But as always, you know, if anybody knows something that I don't, please, please uh, let me know in the comments. I'm not a master modder or anything like that. I've just made so many mistakes that I'm able to point people in the right direction. And I'm lucky enough to have a bunch of really smart friends that help teach me this stuff whenever I need extra tips and things like that. Firebrand X wanted to chime in on the discussion from last week regarding why different consoles can have wildly different resolutions, but they all end up looking like a standard 4x3 image on a CRT. And the key essential factor in determining both detail and aspect ratio is the console's dot clock. In general terms, the faster the console's dot clock, the more resolution can be fit horizontally on a CRT screen. FBX made an image to show how the console dot clock works in relation to an actual 4x3, 320x240 signal. And I'll leave that in the description because I know uh, a large majority of the people that listen to these listen audio only. Uh, so I'll have it in all the descriptions for anybody that's interested. Now, in regards to how to change that image to look 4x3 on a digital screen, so not just an analog CRT, but capture cards, flat panels, etc., um, I think that's where a lot of people might have been getting confused, and there was, you know, discussions, arguments, whatever you want to call them, about what a true aspect ratio is. And FBX kind of wanted to follow up on that and said, everything from any console doesn't get corrected by a CRT, which is why the CRT isn't even a factor when determining proper aspect ratio correction for a given console's resolution. Even the N64, as close as it is to square pixels, is off enough that the monoscope pattern they worked on for it had to correct the outer red square to account for the slightly off from 4x3 dot clock of the console. So what this really gets into is a lot more of the technical side of things and i still respectfully to you fbx like my my answer from last week in general terms fbx's technical answer is way better from a tech perspective but how you saw these games is really how is how the best way to play them is unless you're stretching four by three to 16 by nine and then you're crazy like ian the historical nerd but other than that i think because i know a lot of people that grew up playing like snes on emulation and they played with square pixels which looked totally different than how i played on just a regular tv in my parents living room and stuff like that and i don't think there really is a wrong way when it comes to that the only thing that I ever really get annoyed with, you know, there's where my OCD comes out, is whenever there's a historical video. So something that's supposed to be a direct representation of how the games looked. I always feel like some effort should be made to getting as close to what you would see on a CRT as possible. 
but I don't need to obsess about that. I only get annoyed when it's like uh, square pixel, 8 by 7 super narrow aspect ratio when you're trying to demonstrate what it looked like in the 80s and 90s. I think anything that's close to 4 by 3 just my opinion, by the way, I think anything that's close is more than good enough for playing. And I think there are some situations where going square pixels uh, would, you know, like with 320 and 1080p 5x, it's a little bit fatter than you would expect, but it fills up way more of a flat panel TV, and you get certain things like uh, the moon is an actual circle, not an oval in uh, Castlevania, things like that. Uh, same with 1080p 5x and 256 pixel wide games. It's not quite 4x3, but I just think there's so much benefit to that overall playing it. And it doesn't change it so much that it's not the original game anymore. Uh, once again, I, you know, I gotta always repeat myself because I don't want to upset anybody. This is just my opinion. I'm not trying to tell you how to play your game. I'm just simply saying that, you know, as long as it's squarish, you know, like uh, not stretched to 16 by 9 I guess, is the best better way to say that it's totally fine and then whatever tweaks you want to make from there is you know totally up to you the only time i really appreciate the uh the obsession over making sure we get this stuff right is for archival purposes which is exactly what fbx works a whole lot on and that's things like the monoscope pattern help people calibrate things so when it comes to i, I guess that's a really long ranty way of saying just when you're listening to discussions about this stuff try to do your best to differentiate between deep technical discussions between people who are trying their best to preserve this stuff as as accurately as possible or people that just want to talk about preference and what's the easiest slash you know coolest looking way to play your game on a modern tv i would just recommend separating those two discussions in your brain and always noting that they're two different things and i'm, I'm sure there's going to be people on both camps that i piss off by saying this but it is uh, it is a strong opinion of mine just because it's there's so many right ways to play these games and it's really hard to call any of them wrong unless you're Ian. Jason Guffey was having an issue finding Sega Saturn disc rips that were compatible with the Fenrir optical drive emulator. For me personally, I just stumbled across a ROM set when I first got the Fenrir that totally worked and I didn't have any issues. That is buried on a hard drive somewhere in one of these boxes here, um, but I just kind of got lucky and got to take the lazy way out. But if anybody has a recommendation for guides or tools of ripping your own discs, um, or I guess some of the places that you might want to look for these things, you got to be careful because you can't post links to ROMs because that's just that's illegal in pretty much every country and people get in trouble for that. So you have to be creative in the way you tell people how to find this stuff. But I think the number one question that should be answered is what's a good guide to ripping your own games? And I believe there was a bunch of them out there. Uh, I haven't looked up that stuff in a long time. So if anybody has a suggestion for the guides that they're using today, please feel free to post in the comments. Um, if any, sometimes links get caught in spam, but I try to check a few times a day. So, uh, you know, if your comment doesn't pop up right away, I'll, I'll get to it. I promise. Um, so yeah, I, I'm sorry. I don't really, 
have too much info on it because I haven't done that in a long time. And the closest thing I've done to rip my own games is I had to convert a format of a different game because uh, I was working with a developer on test software. So I'm going to have to kind of pass this along to anybody who might want to be able to point you in the right direction. You can also try Racket Boy. Um, and some of the other websites I used to use for that went down. So that's something I, I probably should work on for retro RGB at some point as well. On a related note to Fenrir, who do they contact for support on the device? I would start with whoever you bought it from. Uh, respectfully, just know that they can't give you links to ROMs or anything like that, but maybe they would have links to um, any kind of conversion software, and maybe they would be able to point you in the right direction for compatibility issues. I guess you said you had a problem with disk two of the Grandia translation. Um, I, I believe... 8-Bit Mods has a compatibility list. I haven't checked it since it was released, but you might want to just reference that one. And lastly, how do I recommend they play Japanese games on a US PS2? They have a free McBoot memory card, but don't have any hardware mods. Is there something they could do in software, or do they need to mod the system? They usually use a slim PlayStation 2, but they have fat ones they could bust out if need be. So every time I've played Japanese games on USPS2, it was always the same thing. I used Open uh, OPL and Open PlayStation Loader, I think is what it's called, but OPL is the uh, short name for it, and Free McBoot to run it off the hard drive. And that's how I played all of the Sega Ages games. That's why I always do the uh, Fantasy Zone game, because you could easily toggle between resolutions and stuff, and that makes it super easy for my testing. So I think that's that's really the easiest way and that's i'm a big fan of that because even if you own the japanese game and you really wanted to play the disc your choices are to buy a japanese ps2 and import that uh, or to install a really complicated mod chip in your ps2 that's a really hard mod or just rip the game or download a rip of it drop it on a hard drive and, and kind of go from there so it's always my go-to for stuff like that just because i find it to be so much easier even when i own the games the only thing is as with everything you might run into some learning curves when you first start doing that because you have to load up windows software uh, you have to plug the hard drive into your computer and then you don't just dump the ISO onto it. You have to use software to load the game on. So it's one of those things where the first time you do it, you're probably going to be pulling your hair out for an hour. And then once you get into the flow, the next time you need to add a game, it's going to be as simple as like, all right, unplug the hard drive, plug it into the USB converter. Cause I, you know, as a former IT nerd, I have a stack of like USB to hard drive adapter or hard drive to USB adapters. So you just plug that in, load up the software, dump your ISO onto it, plug it back into the PlayStation two and you're done. The other thing you could do if you're a fellow IT nerd is set up network attached storage and just stream the games over your local network to the PS2. And that's something that you might even be able to do with your PS2 Slim, but I personally have not got it working yet. The Girl Geek did, uh, Dan Mons did, and I just haven't had time to, to finish. I started, I set up a basic share, and then I went all right, I bet you I'm missing one small thing because it's not showing up. I'll get back to it tomorrow. And that was six months ago. So um, but that is something that, you know, there's going to be a much higher learning curve for that. But if you're com uh, like comfortable working with networking and stuff like that, that would be a great solution that would work on any PS2 that has a network jack in it. So certainly something to consider, but hopefully I was able to 
sort of point you in the right direction for this stuff. Sorry, this week's answers weren't, weren't solid ones, but hopefully they helped a little. Richard Webster has a VGA monitor and an Extron VGA switch that both use standard three-pin AC power cables. So the same thing that you would find in the back of a PC or a PC monitor. Um, Richard wants to know if it's okay to power both of these using a power lead splitter that has one AC plug, but two connectors. And the specific one Richard linked to basically is like an AC cable Y cable. And I think 99% sure that if you plug this in and there's no interference and you don't have any immediate issues that it should be totally safe. So just as an experiment, I would power them on, or I would plug them in with separate cables. Like, you know, look at a title screen of your favorite game so that you could immediately tell if something's off, power it down, plug it in using this. And if there's no interference, then it means there's probably no ground issues and you're fine. Um, if anybody has anything else to add about that, please let me know. But as far as I'm concerned, and as far as everything that I've been taught, most of the power strips that we use are essentially just this. And in fact, even many of the ones that are labeled surge protector are essentially just power strips, you know, one AC in just wired up to a bunch of different outlets going into it. Um, and whereas something like this just is very blatantly a Y cable and, you know, doesn't have a label on it like that. So you should be totally fine, but I would just double check because I have power trust issues. So I have, I have no problem admitting that. Um, and the only other thing to mention is if you do have any kind of weird grounding issues, you would probably have it no matter what, but plugging directly into your wall should be completely fine, especially if you live in a place with, you know, modern circuit breakers uh, that are of decent quality, not federal electric. A couple of, a, a master electrician told me those are the only bad ones. There was a bunch of recalls for those apparently in the US, but according to him, I'm not an electrician, but basically as long as you have a decent circuit breaker, you should be fine. But I choose to add power conditioning to mine just because. Once again, trust issues. Um, Renee from DB Electronics recommended something years ago that I bought a whole bunch of. And what I end up doing is I have one of these and then three or four surge protectors plugged into that. I don't even, uh, power strips, not surge protectors. Sorry, used the wrong name. And while it's really bad to have a whole bunch of stuff going into one and all powered on at the same time, the way I use things is I power on the main APC box and then I power on whatever power strip is connected to the stuff I want to use. Sometimes it's all of them because, you know, speakers, console, whatever else. But I only have one, maybe two monitors turned on and one console turned on and a stereo. So the same that you would normally have if I just plugged them all into the APC power conditioner. So that's just another friendly reminder that you could have a thousand consoles all running through one giant power strip into a power conditioner into your wall. And as long as the same normal amount are only powered on at the same time, that should never be an issue, even with phantom power and stuff like that. You know, there's always the crazy use case. There's always a bunch of other stuff, but I really like that workflow. And the only other thing I'll add to that is the only weird quirk I've ever had with that APC box, which I'll link to if anybody's interested in that, but I have to power that on first and I leave everything, uh, the power switches turned off on them all anyway. But if I forget and leave them all turned on, 
there seems to be some kind of weird thing where the APC, uh, you know, thinks that it's overloading and just won't turn on and it doesn't hurt anything. I just got to turn it off, turn off the power strips and then turn on the APC thing first. I don't think that's an issue, but all the ones I've ever owned did it. And as long as you turn it on in the right order, it should be fine. So if you choose to add any power conditioning, which you don't need most likely, um, that's the only thing I would, I would keep in mind is if you ever have a weird overload issue, just power it on one thing at a time like that. So, you know, you, you only really asked about your Y cable, but I just wanted to add some extra info in there in case you wanted to add more consoles or in case anybody cared, or I guess maybe I just felt like talking about power. Well, that's it for this time. Usually at the end of the Q&As, I tell newcomers where they could post their questions, uh, but is that just annoying to everybody that listens every week? Do you listen to the end just to make sure there's no extra announcements or anything like that? Do most people just close off the, you know, the podcast or the video before they get to the end anyway? If you're a newcomer, do you even hear that, or should I put that in the description of the YouTube video? Which actually, it has always been in the description of the YouTube video, so am I just being annoying and redundant? As always, I would like to know what you think, and I would just like to do what is easiest and best for all of you. But one thing I will never stop doing is thank everybody for watching, listening, and of course, thanking everybody who supports, because I really do genuinely appreciate it, because I'm so grateful to be able to do all of the awesome work I'm a part of behind the scenes, as well as all the cool stuff, like the articles and the videos and stuff like that. But um, all of this stuff is just because of you. So thank you all very much for your support, and I will see you next week.